reunion audio. You have a prepaid call. You will not be I'm Anna Dalvey, and this is the Anna Dalvey Show. You might recognize my name as a character in the Netflix series, but now you get to meet the real me. On this show, I will dive into the concept of rules and talk with the people who create or break them. From art, politics, fashion, tech, finance, law, and more, the Anna Delvey Show will share honest, unfiltered conversations that will question traditional notions of what's right and wrong, all recorded in my East Village apartment in New York while on house arrest. Today, we are talking to another journalist, Taylor Lorenz. She's extremely online which also happens to be the title of her new book. We'll be setting some records straight about her Wikipedia page and her online feuds with the likes of Elon Musk. She's currently a technology and online culture reporter at the Washington Post. Hi, Taylor. Thank you so much for coming. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. So for listeners who don't know you, would you like to tell us how you get started? Yeah, so... I'm a technology journalist. I write about online culture. And I actually started back over a decade ago in 2009 as a blogger. I got extremely into Tumblr, if you remember that era of the internet. I do. Um, uh, So like a lot of millennials, I had graduated into the recession. There were not a lot of jobs. I had these kind of crappy temp jobs. And one of the girls at my temp job introduced me to Tumblr, and that really changed my life. I started making lots of Tumblr blogs and getting more and more into the internet, writing on the internet. And that led to my first blogging job. And yeah, I've basically been in social media, internet stuff ever since. Sometimes I've done stuff for brands, like run social strategy at at ad agencies um, and run big brand campaigns. I've ghostwritten for a lot of celebrity social media. And then I now am a journalist and I write full-time about internet stuff. And you had quite an art, right? You like started off at Daily Mail and uh, went to New York Times and Washington Post. Um, what was it like going from like a publication like Daily Mail? And you did like social media for them, right? Yeah, exactly. Like when a social media manager was not even like a job and it just started off. <laughs> yeah, I was the first social person ever at the Daily Mail. I set up their whole social media strategy. Um, I had been working at an ad agency previously running social campaigns for brands. Um, and I had gotten that job off my Tumblr popularity and, um, yeah. So the daily mail is my favorite website. I know it's crazy and it's a tabloid, so, you know, you can't rely on it all the time, but, um, I just love tabloid news. And so I was a big reader of it and was able to get in front of the publisher who hired me as their first social person. And I built the entire social strategy and social team out. I hired, you know, a dozen social media editors around the world. And it was a great introduction to journalism. I mean, say what you will about the Daily Mail and trust me, they've come for me before. So I say this, <laughs> I, I can empathize with how, you know, how people feel, but, um, but there's something they're extremely good at storytelling and they're extremely good at story framing. And it was a, it was a great first job in journalism because I really learned how to tell a story in a way that's interesting for people and gets people talking about it and sharing it. Oh, that's interesting. But what else do you like to read after Daily Mail? <laughs> What's like your media diet? I read a lot of tabloid news. I mean, I'm a huge reality TV junkie. So I am I follow a lot of um, like drama pages and pages mm-hmm. like Dumois about celebrity news. I read a lot of Substack newsletters too. There's one called Garbage Day that is hilarious. It's this guy that used to work at BuzzFeed and he just does these like news roundups of weird internet stuff. And I listen to a lot of podcasts too. I love, yeah, I mean, I'm on a podcast now, but I love the (laughs) other podcasts. Um, There's one called Western Kabuki that's really funny. It's just these internet personalities. And I'm a big fan of the Wall Street Journal's daily podcast, actually. I listen to that every day. Oh, really? Me too. I actually have um, a Wall Street Journal subscription, but mainly just because I like the magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the easiest way to get it. You actually subscribe to the whole newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're like very active on Instagram. <laughs> uh, and you have multiple accounts, right? Do you like do everything yourself or do you have yeah. a team? <laughs> no, definitely no team. It's just me. <laughs> I do everything myself online. Um, which you can probably tell from some of my really bad video editing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've always been an internet person and I was kind of an internet person before I was a journalist. And so 
I like to experiment with social platforms. I have multiple accounts and pretty much every platform I join because I really like to kind of see what the different experiences are like for different sorts of pages. You know, I have a lot of like theme pages. I have one Instagram account that's just like bird related content because I love birds. <laughs> um, and so I like to go on there sometimes and kind of experience the algorithm almost through different lenses um, and just get outside. Like, I don't understand how people just have one account on certain platforms because I feel like um, I really want to get out of my filter bubble and see what else is yeah. out there. And a lot of times the only way to do that is to set up a secondary account. They all offer like different angles and perspectives and different ways to exactly. <laughs> be, <laughs> be insulted. <laughs> yeah. So what's your relationship like with Twitter? Yeah, Twitter is, I'm kind of fallen off. I used to use Twitter all the time. It was like my favorite social platform after Tumblr. Um, but after Elon Musk banned me in December, after I reported um, a story on him, basically uh, revealing that he had lied about a certain encounter where he claimed he was being stalked. And so after he banned me, I got back on and I have to, I know everyone loves to claim like, Oh, I'm shadow banned. I'm shadow banned. Literally my reach on Twitter. I'm an admin on this other account that has like 20,000 followers. And that account gets more reach than my like main page. And I have 350,000. So I use, you know, I'm, I'm extremely high risk, unfortunately for COVID and I have health problems. So I use Twitter to keep up with like news about COVID, but I don't really use it for anything else at this point because it's, it's so unusable. I don't know, Anna, do you use it very much? Like, I feel like it's so broken these days. I'm actually banned of social media. That's one of my oh. conditions of my bond release. So I was released by an ICE judge and he just decided I'm not allowed to use my accounts. Yeah, not myself, not by proxy, like a third party or my manager can't access it. So I'm not allowed to. So it's pretty oh frustrating. God. Yeah, I miss it as a platform, definitely. Kind of like relying on mainstream media to communicate anything and yeah. Um, I don't like relying on, I mean, I always think about like what the news environment like was like in like the nineties when I was little and I don't ever want to go back to that world. Like I like, I really love independent media and alternative media and I like hearing from people directly and I just think that's the beauty of social media. So to be cut off from that would be, yeah, it would drive me insane. It's, it's good to have both. Yeah. Like in an ideal world, you'd have like coverage both from mainstream media and both on social media because it still like has cachet and it validates you, but like, yeah, to not have any access to like any social media, it's pretty frustrating. Like I've been doing it for like almost nine months and I can't wait to get back on. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, I mean, I work in legacy media. I think it's so important to have around, like, you know, they have resources to do great investigations and stuff, but I'm an internet person at my heart. And I love being on like, you know, seeing like when the Titanic sub was, you know, when people were wondering what happened to it, I was like refreshing every two seconds to see what people were saying. It was the perfect, yeah, a drama made for internet and as unfortunate as it is. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> so how do you feel like you're being treated by Elon Musk working for Washington Post and like his feud with Bezos? What was like the experience, your experience in comparison to the other journalists working for Washington yeah. Post? Um, I wouldn't say it has to do with me working for the Washington Post at all, weirdly. Like, I don't think he cares about that because he doesn't he doesn't come for other people at the Post in the same way. He came for my colleague, Drew Harwell, and a couple other mm -hmm. people. But I think his he seems to take issue with specific journalists, and he just doesn't like any journalist that reports critically on him or exposes him no. for lying. So, I mean, we exposed Drew Harwell and I, who's Drew's one of the best reporters at the Post, and he worked on this story with me where we basically revealed that he had misled people about this interaction that he had. And, um, you know, he banned me right after that when I, he banned yeah. me when I reached out for comment for that story. So he hates the media. So how do you think Washington post like being seen today in comparison to like other legacy outlets? And, um, yeah, did you like, did your opinion of it changed at all after starting to work there? Yeah. I mean, um, I was super familiar with the post cause I've had so many friends that work there over the years and I've always been a huge fan of their work. I've had friends in pretty much every department and they've always had really nice things to say about it. Um, I was very, I've always kind of been wary about working in mainstream media because I, I think 
it's hard for people in mainstream media to always understand exactly like the types of stories that I want to do. And, um, also understand the level of attention that I get online sometimes. Like sometimes that's hard for institutions to understand, like how to respond to it. You know, when Tucker Carlson is doing 10 million segments about you every night. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but the post is great. I mean, everyone is just so talented and I feel really lucky to learn from them. My editor, Mark Seibel is, just literally the best editor in the entire world. Like this man, I never want him to retire because he's just such a good editor. I wish he could edit every single thing I ever wrote. And um, so getting to work with him and then, I mean, I've gotten to work with people on other sections as well, like our politics team um, that does such incredible work and our health reporting team. I'm just a huge fan of their work. Like I read mm-hmm. everything that they write. So yeah, I really, I think it's a good place and I would recommend it for anyone that's interested in journalism to, <laughs> you know, to pursue. Subscribe to Washington Post, everybody. Yeah, subscribe <laughs> for, for real though. Cause it's, you know, it takes a lot to do a lot of the journalism mm-hmm. that gets done. So how did you decide to have your focus on like technology specifically? Yeah, I I mean I never was that into tech growing up. I was not one of those like nerdy mm-hmm. kids like learning to code when I was young, but it was really after school when I mm-hmm. got you know into the Tumblr scene, I guess you could say in New York at that time. It was very um they used to call it Silicon Alley. I don't know if they call it still, but it was like this New York tech scene. Mm-hmm. And I got really interested in that. I love technology and I really I'm very much like a tech optimist and I um, believe in the you know power of technology to build a better world. So I thought for a while that I would work in tech. I learned computer programming and I thought, you know, maybe I'll, you know, work in the tech sector. But then what I really realized I like writing about is kind of user behaviors and illuminating kind of trends and the way thing how we use the internet and, and how the internet's changing. So I started writing about it. I used to go to the New York tech meetup every month and Mm -hmm. just introduce myself to everyone there because I was so obsessed with the amount of innovation that was coming out of New York at that time in terms of the tech world. When did you leave New York? I left New York uh, two years ago. Mm. Why? (laughs) Oh, why? Well, it's the pandemic. It was, you know, it was 2020. And like, as I mentioned, I'm I'm super immunocompromised. And so it's hard. It's just harder. LA is easier. Everything's indoor, outdoor and better weather, but I'm a New Yorker for life. I mean, it's the best city in the world. I'll move back (laughs) at some point. Do you travel a lot or is it just like everything can be done online? I used to, yeah, I used to travel. I mean, I used to travel a ton, like an insane amount. And I would always do my stories in person. Um, Since the pandemic hit, I definitely do a lot more online. Um, But like I said, I was just back in New York for six weeks. I went to the Cannes Film Festival this year I'm going to be doing a book tour this fall, so I'll be traveling a bit. Oh, yeah, that's exciting. Well, we get um, to your book. I'm really excited to talk about it. Um. Yeah. (laughs) I know it's been such a rush and, like, you know, just getting it done and getting it finalized has been a journey. How long did the whole process take? About two years. I I didn't really take as much time as I should have off because it's unpaid leave if you take book leave. So I didn't really... I I wish I had taken more time off to like, you know, write, but I just did a lot of it on top of my job, which was, uh, (laughs) that was stressful. Um, But yeah, it took about two years start to finish. Do you think like books are still a thing or do people still read books? Oh my God. Literally, I asked the exact same question (laughs) like of my book agent (laughs) when she was like, you should do a book. Um, I... Yeah, I think that they're a thing for journalists. Like, I don't know if people will read my whole book, but I do think that like it's important to have for like history and for journalism, like journalists in the future to like reference. Um, one thing that kind of led me to do this book was just the amount of revisionist history coming out of Silicon Valley around mm-hmm. like the boom of the tech world. Like all these women were written out of history and all of these users, like they really gloss over like the user side of social media and they like to act like they came up with all of these amazing features and they're the responsible for a platform success when really big content creators have shaped the platform, like users shape the platform as much as the tech companies themselves. And so I wanted to write like a history that mm-hmm. was sort of set the record straight on some of the, some of mm-hmm. how this stuff emerged, especially like the influencer world. Cause I think people are sort of just starting to take it seriously and recognize that it's a thing. And 
they think of it as a new phenomenon. And I think my book shows that actually this has been like decades in the making. Hmm. Are you going to do an audio book too? Yes. And I actually just chose the girl that's reading it. I'm extremely dyslexic. So you do not want me reading my own book aloud. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but the girl that's reading it is awesome. I'm going to read the intro. Hmm. Uh, what do you think of like the whole sap stack and people just publishing their books chapter by chapter and like paywall content? Yeah. I, I mean, I love it. I think it's really great. I, I just love what Substack is doing. And mm-hmm. um, there's another platform called Beehive as well. It's a great mm-hmm. newsletter platform. And like, I just think it's great to have that these writers have these spaces to publish and express themselves. It reminds me a lot of Tumblr where you could write and publish and build an audience and not have to go through the gatekeepers of, mm-hmm. you know, some editor somewhere telling you whether or not your work is good, you know, because a lot yeah. of times your work will find an audience online, you know, whether or not you're some big name. Did you ever consider um, that for yourself, like going that route? Yeah, I have a Substack. Uh, it's just taylorlorenz.substack.com. <laughs> I mean, I post on like everywhere. I'm crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would love to be independent one day. I think the reason that I work in mainstream media now is because I really want to reach a certain audience. Um, and I think that those people, like older people still get their news that way. And I want to learn, like I mentioned, um, you know, some of my colleagues that I work with, um, I've, I've just been like following their work forever. This guy, Will Aramis, who I work with, like, I think I've read his work for like 10 years. So just the opportunity to get to work with people like this or talented editors at the post, I just, it's worth it for me for that reason. But yeah, I mean, being independent is, is really worthy and, and agree. I, I love anybody that can do it. Mm-hmm. Do you think a lot of like older people converted to consuming news um, through social media or like, yeah? Yeah, I think um, not as much as younger people because the consumption patterns are so different, like in terms of how they use the platforms. But certainly, I mean, it's so funny because I mean, old people were getting a lot of boomers were getting their news straight from Facebook, you know, and they were like plugged into the Facebook pipeline. Mm-hmm. Some of them have Twitter now, um, but even Substack has really been able to reach a ton of people. And if you look at who succeeds on Substack, it's some of them are quite inflammatory or like opinionated <sighs> people, but it's a lot of other people too. Like, I mean, Heather Cox Richardson, who's the most popular Substack, or like, she's just a history professor, you know, this, this older woman, um, not, I don't want to call her old, but you know, <laughs> she's not like Gen Z or anything. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of, I think, I think consumption patterns across the for everyone are changing, but I think, um, the older you are, the more likely you are to be stuck in certain habits. And so people in the older demographics still treat legacy media with a level of like gravitas, I guess that younger people don't. Definitely. I'm very, um, interested to see how like Gen Z, how they will involve to consume news, because I'm sure they will, they won't be Instagram, like in this current shape or form in like 20, 30 years. <laughs> oh, or maybe yeah. they'll, they'll keep it alive just for them. <laughs> yeah. Very right, that will be like see. streaming stuff to our brains. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, do you use Facebook? Yeah, I have a Facebook. Um, I mean, I used to use it a ton. I don't use it as much now. But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm around on it. <laughs> it's how much time do you think you spend on like social media daily? <laughs> oh God, like all day long. I mean, <laughs> it's my job. So it's kind of like from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to bed, I'm mm-hmm. on the internet usually <laughs> in some capacity. Do Unless you, I'm out doing things. Do you silence like notifications when you have to write or like produce? Or, like I yeah. have no notifications on ever. Mm-hmm. I have nothing. The only person that's allowed to call me and get notifications is my mother. Um, and sometimes I'll turn it on for like select friends. Like if I want to meet up with someone in town or something, but I always have my notification silence because I'm on my phone enough anyway that I end up seeing stuff and I just hate being interrupted. I hate being interrupted. So, yeah. yeah. I only have notifications for like my POs and lawyers. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Honestly, I should put my lawyer on uh, <laughs> push alerts. <laughs> For the listeners who don't know, would you like to talk about what led you to be banned from Twitter and that whole drama? Yeah. So, I mean, God, in December, Elon Musk posted a video of this man and asked for help identifying him and was like, you know, 
I think, I can't remember if he offered a reward or not, but he was basically like, I want to like, whoever can identify this guy first, like Mm -hmm. I need, I need your help. He tried to assault my son and I identified him within 12 hours as a journalist. And it, and also realized that sort of the version of events that Elon had given, which is that this guy had stalked him using this flight tracker, you know, Twitter account was a complete lie. And um, Elon had fabricated, you know, it really, that, the story that he told was was completely misleading and a lie. And so, um, our, you know, Drew Harwell and I published our story on that. Um, I had to reach out to Elon for comment um, for this story. And when I did that, he banned me. Um, and he had been on a whole spree. I mean, he had banned a bunch of other journalists mm. the week before. And with me, he couldn't, they didn't know, you know, I only had a couple of tweets. So I delete all my tweets. Like I don't, I hate, I think it's so crazy that people have this like long feed. So at the time I, I only had three tweets up on my account and they were promoting my Instagram account. Mm-hmm. And it was like two tweets promoting my Instagram account. And then one reply to him, to Elon being like, Hey, Elon, I sent you an email, you know, our story's about to publish. Do you have any comment? And so when he banned me, he had to like make up an excuse for why he was banning me. And so the violative tweet that I had was found to be the one that like was promoting my Instagram account. I don't yeah. know if you remember, but like this one day, he basically made up this rule as like retroactively that was like, Oh, you can't promote your other social media accounts on Twitter. And he used that to ban me. And then it was within 24 hours, he reversed it. Um, and I, and I had to delete my tweet, you know, when I got back on Instagram, I deleted the violet of tweet or sorry, when I got back on Twitter, I deleted the violet of tweet, but, um, yeah, he had to roll back that rule. Cause ultimately that rule was found to be illegal in the UK because of their privacy. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. What do you think like of Tucker Carlson having a show on Twitter now? <laughs> His show is so bad. It's hilarious. Like, I'm like, has this man ever watched a single YouTube video in his life? Like (laughs) it was like a 10 minute long, not a single jump cut in the entire video. It's so crazy. Like no graphics, no background music. Like I felt like I was on drugs. Like I was just like, who is this for? Also like who wants to watch long form content on here at all? Like it's hilarious. It's hilarious. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and then I saw Fox sued him immediately for breach of contract, and I don't think he's published a video since. So good luck to him. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. He doesn't, it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because, you know, he's still like Fox is such a powerful media entity. And, um, you know, if that Twitter show is a breach of contract, that could end up costing him a lot of money. Have you ever considered working for like a TV channel yourself? I think TV in general is kind of a dead medium and it's pretty irrelevant in culture. I think it's like, I mean, Netflix is relevant and streaming, but um, cable TV, I think is just a dead media form. I'm surprised that it's even around. I think in the next five years, it'll be completely dead. I think, I think it's already completely out of step with culture. It's, it's so weird to watch cable TV. Like I went into to visit my grandmother recently in her nursing home and like she had like CNN on and I was just like, what is this? Like, (laughs) are people watching this all day? I mean, I know boomers are, and there are really talented um, journalists at CNN like that do work, you know, this guy, Donnie O'Sullivan, for instance, is phenomenal. I'm not trying to bash on like the journalists there, but like, Jesus Christ, I don't know. Cable TV is, I think, corrosive and bad for society. Did you tune in when Ron DeSantis decided to announce his candidacy on Twitter? Yes. <laughs> the most janky Twitter space I've ever. Yeah, that was hilarious. I had friends over and um, like he, my friend tried to tune in and it just was a complete disaster. It but... kept breaking. I, I was in there for like a minute. It was it was chaos. I mean, <laughs> just a perfect encapsulation of that whole ecosystem. It's just like broken. <laughs> I feel like it got him way more publicity than it would have had he done it in a traditional way. Yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> Maybe it was a net, net win in the end. <laughs> I mean, if that's what he was going for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who do you think is going to win this election? Oh my God, it's such a good question. I covered the 2016 election. Um, like I was on the campaign trail and everything. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking back to 2016. And even in June, it was right before the Republican National Convention. Like people were thinking it was going to be a contested convention and Trump wouldn't win. So I think everything can change 
so quickly. Um, I don't know that DeSantis has the charisma of, you know, other candidates, um, but we'll see. I mean, we're so far out still, like we're over a year away. So I think we have tons of time for things to go totally off the rails. <laughs> New York Post versus Daily Mail. <laughs> what are you- <laughs> well, Keith, Keith Poole, who I think is still the editor of the Post. I used to work with him at the Daily Mail. He's mm-hmm. I think, the editor-in-chief of the Post now. Um, again, I love tabloid news, but I think the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail just has such a strong entertainment coverage. And that's mm-hmm. really what I like. I think their political coverage is clearly has sort of a point of view. I love the celebrity, like just kind of like the fun stories that they do that are like stories that you wouldn't see anywhere else that are like a little bit tongue in cheek or funny. Like, I mean, I love the female section, which is the women's section. And the New York Post is not as good at at a lot of that stuff. But I mean, again, I'm a New Yorker. I grew up reading the New York Post. I would get the New York Post. I would get it every single day on my way onto the subway before my internships Mm -hmm. and my jobs. And when I worked retail, we used to take copies of the New York post and hide it in between sweaters at the job that I worked at. And then when our manager was gone, we would pull it out and read it. So, you know, I, I I read a lot of forms of media and I love taking all of that stuff in. And, you know, they're obviously very good at writing certain headlines that got attention. So Mm -hmm. learn from that. Yeah. They're genius at headlines. It's a whole craft. Yeah. (laughs) Do you still read anything in print? No. Um, I really don't actually. Um, I used to get New York magazine in print and I finally, I finally canceled. Um, just because I was seeing so much of it online already that it started to feel really redundant. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I don't read anything in print. I, print is such a lost art. Actually, you know what somebody gave me recently? Um, Forever Magazine. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I did. I um, know the girls who run it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's so cool. And they gave me two issues of their print magazine and I love it. And like the graphic design is so fun and cool. And I just, I love print. I love the way, you know, it's such an art form. And so, yeah, for, I guess the only thing I'm reading in print is, is, is forever magazine because that's all I have it's only print magazine I own and I think it's really good I think Gen Z is trying to make print cool again <laughs> I hope they do I hope they do while millennials are like trying to forget it I was obsessed with print like magazines mostly um when I was a kid but now it's um what I find the most valuable thing about print is um, that you kind of can see, like, they prioritize the news, like what's on mm-hmm. the front page, the second page. And it's what's really funny. I was still in jail when Trump announced his um, that he was running for president again. And uh, the way the po- New York Post covered him, they put him like, I don't know, on the 25th page saying the orange man is running again. And they were compared. That, that was the news, how New York Post was covering Trump this time around. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, I love, I, I mean, I, I love print too. And I wish there were more, there was more print to go around um, because it is such a lost art form kind of. So I got so used to it. I have like this app I downloaded. Um, I think it's not like Press Reader or something where you can um, look at print, but online. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I know. Wait, <laughs> wait, it's like a VE version of the print issue. <laughs> I love it. Same thing with Wall Street Journal. <laughs> that's so awesome. I love that. Um, what do you think of Ted Kaczynski? <laughs> oh my God. Why is he all around all of a sudden? I feel like I keep hearing about him all of a sudden. Uh, I actually have somebody gave me this book, um, his anti-tech revolution. Really? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. I mean, I, yeah, I, I feel like I keep seeing like memes about Ted Kaczynski lately. I feel like it's probably just like a reaction to, you know, the way that tech has completely taken over our lives that maybe like people are starting (laughs) to like resonate with some of his like <laughs> ideology obviously he's completely extreme but like I don't know um yeah it's, I feel like he's having kind of a moment online though <laughs> maybe he, maybe because he died recently <laughs> yeah I don't know it's just like it's just funny how people get these like second lives on the internet for random reasons <laughs> back to me um when did you hear about me first <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good question. I, I, well, I, it was the New York Post, I think, or the Daily Mail was covering your trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, 
heard about it in the sense that like I I was reading, I read those news outlets every day and I just saw them covering you and I was like, oh, that's interesting. They're covering this girl who I guess, you know, had sort of like worked her way into like the socialite world or whatever, like they were framing you as. I thought it was interesting because I, I don't know if you read the beginning of my book, but it's about this website called Socialite Rank. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think like the media loves like socialites and the concepts of socialites and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think I saw like your name with socialite. And then it wasn't really until the Jessica, I think it was Jessica Pressler, right? Who wrote the yeah. article um, that I was like, oh, this is crazy. This is a crazy mm-hmm. story. And I'm, I'm curious, like, I mean, yeah, it must've been so wild to be on the other side of that. And like what that was like for you, just experiencing that, like you where you weren't in jail when the cut story came out, right? The New York Mag story. That's right. So I've been in jail for like that whole time, pretty much. I got arrested in um, end of 2017 and I have not been out until 2021 for six weeks. And then um, ICE took me into custody in like March, 2021. And um, I've been in their custody for like 18 months until end of last year. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) So I see it like... I think it would have been really crazy for me to um, like to be outside and um, to read everything about myself because like now it doesn't really matter. Like no one single piece can like make or break me um, unless it's like something really awful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But back then there was like only exclusively bad stuff. So um, I feel like just me being in jail kind of like in retrospective, it did help because you just don't... um, you live for it differently. If it's just constantly, if you don't have the option, like to go on Twitter or Instagram or like to Google yourself um, 50 times a day. So <laughs> honestly, yeah, I, that's probably the silver lining is that you didn't have to live through that. I think, I don't know, I've dealt with bad press before and it's so disturbing. I don't know how like celebrities deal with it just to see this like alternate version of yourself portrayed in the media. And I think it's just a human emotion and normal human reaction to just want to correct the record and like want to tell the reporter like, Hey, you got that wrong. Or like, that's not how I am. You know, like everyone wants everyone else to see themselves the way that like everyone else wants, you know, others to see the, to see themselves the way that they see themselves, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I think anytime you're in the media, it's, it's challenging. Even the most, I mean, it's very true that like even the most flattering profiles of someone, the person that you're writing about will always have an issue with it because that's not how they would write about themselves. Um, I try really, really hard when I write my stories to make, I mean, if I'm profiling someone, I want people to feel like it's accurate. Like I want it to be as accurate as possible. <laughs> Should I think a lot that. of journalists don't do that. I think they like kind of get lazier. They have a narrative about someone that they just mm-hmm. want to push. And, um, at least, yeah, I try to never do that. What do you feel like about journalists, um, having like being, how do I say it? Not being pressured, but, um, maybe like thinking that they need a new angle on somebody, especially somebody who's been covered a lot. Do you feel like you have to do that too? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's just natural human curiosity a lot of the time too, is like, oh, this person has been so written about, but what else is there? You know, what else is the new way in? I think as journalists too, like you have to find those new way in, new ways in because you want people to read your story. And so Mm -hmm. you don't want to just do the same story that somebody else has already done a hundred times. So I think there's pressure to maybe try and find like a new angle on something that makes it relevant again, you know, that allows it to get like a second life. And sometimes people want that. I mean, sometimes people feel like they've, been really wronged by the press and they want to get their story out or, or maybe there is this whole other side of someone that's never been told. Right. And so like, it is interesting to tell that side, but then you have the other people where it's like, okay, this person has been written about a hundred times and you have some journalists that's like 101. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I used to work at people magazine and, um, I did a bunch of interviews and I remember interviewing a YouTuber and basically being that I'm like, well, what else is there? And she's like, there's not, this is it. Like I put my entire life on YouTube, like, you know, it all. And I'm like, you know what? I have to just accept that, you know, that there is, just, there is not some secret new narrative. 
Do you feel like you become, um, I mean, you've been covered a lot as well. Do you feel like it just gets better over time? Just negative publicity and like, do you become numb to it? Or is it just, just as bad as like the first time? It's not just as bad. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how, I mean, obviously you've dealt with it on a level that I've never dealt with it, but, but it's very hard in the beginning. I mean, it's extremely hard. I, because you see people, especially as a journalist, I think it's like extra offensive and angering when you see people lying about you. I mean, I saw this one media reporter that just flat out lied, I mean, lied, like true lies that at one point ended up on my Wikipedia page. And again, it's like, you want to correct the record and be like, that's a lie. That's not true. Or like you, you got that so wrong that it's essentially a lie because you got the story so wrong that it's misleading, mm. uh, whether it's that's intentional or not. And um, I think it's given me a great amount of empathy and made me a much better reporter because now when I go in, I just have so much more empathy for the people that I'm actually reporting on because I know what it's like to get the short end of the stick on the other side. And Hmm. I'm really glad to be in LA because there's a lot of people out here that um, have a similar view of the media where I think there's um, some skepticism around, you know, how things are portrayed And I certainly have a healthy amount of skepticism as somebody that works in the industry, because I've seen the way the industry works and I've seen Mm -hmm. how people, you know, are forced into different incentives. And, um, so, you know, it, that all of that stuff has helped me handle it, but Mm -hmm. it's still really hard. I mean, I've had to do all these interviews for my books and it's like, I'm terrified because I feel Mm -hmm. like, I feel like people just, people just want to build people up to tear them down. And, um, People, people will have an, a, you know, an idea of, of who you are, and then they sort of only look for evidence that backs up that idea of who you are. And they don't want to hear any evidence to the contrary. And there's nothing you can do to convince them. It's like lying by admission. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, I, I, it gets easier to deal with at time. I don't understand people that are like true celebrity, celebrity, like A-listers that get written about in the tabloids every week. And like, I don't understand how they don't respond because that's been something that's so hard for me. Like, I mean, you don't have social media, but like, I want to get on Twitter and be like, that's wrong. Fuck you. Like pick fights. And, um, you know, I'm, I've like tried to get better about that over the years and just be like, look, this is a bad article. It'll fall off my Google results in three weeks. Don't have a meltdown. You know, maybe the reporter made these errors in earnest. Oh, another great place um, to check out is like comments in New York Post and Daily Mail on oh the articles. Daily Mail comments are vicious. <laughs> <laughs> the comment sections are so out of control, out of control. Yeah. It's a great, a great exercise in like building thick skin. A hundred percent. People are so vicious online, but it's good to like, once you have, I don't know if you feel like this, Hannah, but like once you've built that up a little bit. I, I don't know. I, it, it's such an important muscle to have in this world, you know, is to have a thick skin because if you have a thick enough skin, you can kind of do anything. Yeah. I feel like if you're like, if you're looking for some hate and then it's just like, you go every morning, you check out daily mail comments. Yeah. <laughs> like, people are so mean. <laughs> so mean. What do you think of Wikipedia? You know, I, I love, I love Wikipedia in a lot of ways. It's so earnest. I love um, the account depths of Wikipedia. Do you follow that account or you don't have Instagram? I don't, are you familiar? but I met, um, I met a girl, Annie. Annie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she's awesome. Um, yeah. She came over once. <laughs> yeah. She's, um, she's awesome. And so she's like kind of renewed my love in, of Wikipedia. I was very anti-Wikipedia for a while because there's so much misinformation on my Wikipedia page. I don't know if it's still there, but there's been a lot of, you know, p- bad actors will try to edit your Wikipedia. And it was really frustrating to me for a while. And again, I've just kind of given up on it. I'm like, you know what? Think what you want to think, whatever. Um, but yeah, now I just love to like go on the weirdest Wikipedia. Like I was on the Wikipedia for elevators the other day, just like going down the rabbit hole and. I love it for stuff like that. I think Wikipedia is like, I don't know who this editors are. Like some of them, I just like see them as terrorists. It's <laughs> yeah. Well, hundred percent. I mean, I think like they like to act like they're all very neutral, but it's not neutral. A lot of the stuff that ends up on Wikipedia is very not neutral. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, my team tried to change something. Um, it was just something neutral. It was not good or bad um, on my Wikipedia page and it got changed back. Within less than five minutes, oh my God, <laughs> just pointing out 
that it's not true, but it's like, it's obviously the editor's opinion. And it just like was not important enough to like argue with, but it's just so crazy to me that there's a person just waiting to edit something <laughs> for I like know. for no compensation either like <laughs> I know I, like, I know I think there are really I think there are really earnest amazing um editors out there that do that like take a lot of great care I know a couple of people that like are Wikipedia editors and like manage these famous people's pages and like really like love those people and care for their pages and then yeah like you said there's the other people that are just power hungry kind of <laughs> Do you want to like address your Wikipedia at all? Like what was wrong? Um, oh, um, you know what? I know. Maybe I get it. Let's see. Let's see if there's any. It's the controversies section. And of I course. let's see if it's still there. I there is an age conspiracy, which is hilarious. Oh, here's here's something I want to correct the record on. This ugh, I mean, there's so many random other little things that are not true on here, but um the it under personal life it says that in an interview with msnbc taylor lorenz says she has severe ptsd from experiencing online harassment <laughs> that is not true that segment which i spoke out about at the time was such a hor- horrible 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 segment that was completely misleading and completely misrepresented um what i said and my experience um i i i definitely what I went through in 2020, it wasn't just online harassment. It was, it was people terrorizing me and my family members. And it was very, you know, there was a big offline component to that as well. And so I hate this notion of like, oh, Taylor has, you know, PTSD from online harassment. No, I have, I had PTSD from people terrorizing my family members, you know, in the physical world and doing a lot of other fucked up stuff that I, you know, don't talk about publicly for security reasons. And so it's just, it's such a, it's such a gross misrepresentation and that MSNBC segment was so irresponsible. Anyway, (laughs) I'm like, oh, I could rant forever about certain, you know, media things. You know, I'm sure you feel the same way that like, it's so frustrating. I feel like the one thing that helps a lot is this, there's always something new to get mad about. Definitely. It's just like, you can't, um, there's just so much. I hate like when people just dig something up and it just makes completely no sense. But yeah, every day there's just something new, some new inaccuracy. And at some point it's just like, just think whatever you want. I know (laughs) a couple of weeks ago or like it was a month ago, Elon Musk was promoting this conspiracy that my uncle owns the internet archive (laughs) and so that I can have things, anything I want deleted off the internet. And I literally like, the guy from the internet archive was like, replied to him, like, I don't even know Taylor Lorenz. Um, and <laughs> she's certainly not my niece. And like, also the internet archive is a nonprofit, but, um, but people still believe that. I mean, all of Elon's <laughs> stupid fans believe it. And I'm like, you know what? Believe it. Believe that I control the internet then. Are you still engaged? I'm looking at your Wikipedia. <laughs> no, no. I got engaged when I was younger. Um, to, yeah, a, a journalist that is on my Wikipedia still. And I think he would love to be off my Wikipedia, <laughs> but. <laughs> That's another correction, Wikipedia. They can cite this podcast. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's other random little stuff. I, I think it's like, again, uh, you know, I, I wish that I wish that Wikipedia would give people I wish that like I had the ability to comment like from myself. Like I wish that Wikipedia had a thing where like you could prove that you were the person and Mm -hmm. you could like add commentary so that people reading it could see that like, Hey, let me actually like give you a little context on this line or whatever, you know? I totally agree. We should like start a petition for that. And like people can take it, um, however they want to take it if like they know that it's coming from you because I guess the issue is like they don't want you yourself editing it because you're obviously biased but if it's disclosed like I think people would be definitely interested 100% yeah and like you can just say whatever and it's just yeah that's great I mean that's a great idea (laughs) we need to make that happen (laughs) we need Annie we need Annie to tell the uh, Wikipedia bosses to implement it (laughs) we should call it (laughs) Meekipedia yeah (laughs) I love it what do you think of like Elon Musk and his idea for um, journalist ranking it was back in the day but um I was thinking about it recently what did he want to call it Pravda Um, 
Yeah, that was such a stupid idea. I mean, Elon hates journalists because they expose him for <laughs> lying all the time. Um, I think it's a kind of a stupid idea because nobody has like different people have different opinions on things. So somebody that I consider highly reputable, somebody else that has completely different opinions on stuff might not consider it reputable. You know what I mean? And I think, um, I think that that any kind of database would be inherently skewed by so much individual bias that it would essentially be worthless. Yeah. What do you think of like the whole AI and chat GPT and how it affected and will affect journalism? Yeah, I wish, honestly, I, I wish it was better than it is. I tried, I used it to try and help me to write this speech that I had to give recently. And it was so bad. I just was <laughs> like, fuck it. I'm just going to write my own speech because <laughs> this AI is like just writing like, everything that it writes is like just filler words. Like there's none, it's, there's no like skill to it. So, I mean, hopefully it'll get better. I, I, I'm not like a huge lover of writing. Um, like I feel like I write only just to, to get the information out. So if I could just feed all the information into an AI and have it write the story, I think that would be really cool. Um, but I don't know. I think we'll, I don't think we'll ever be in a position where it's only, only AI or only humans. I think it's going to be one of these things where like AI becomes a really powerful assistive technology for different forms of creativity. Um, and sometimes that creativity can be automated in certain ways, but, um, I think there's, people will always have a value, some, some sort of value for, for stuff that humans make. Hmm. I think it was like funny at the very beginning, um, the chat GPT, but after you do it like a couple of times, you can instantly recognize and that it's yeah. been written <laughs> yeah. or um a funny like a funny prompt is like write xyz in style off and like you just pick somebody who <laughs> yeah <laughs> i need to, you need to try that or you <laughs> rewrite this new york times article in style of taylor lorenz for <laughs> <laughs> i had it write some tweets for me that were really random <laughs> <laughs> what do you think will end the world you know I don't know, but I, I mean, people like to say climate change. I think that, I think that probably, I think probably we'll be wiped out by something before climate change really ruins the world. Um, but I think it's going to be like a deadly pathogen or like something, some other kind of catastrophic event is going to ru ruin like human life. Hmm. Not it. But I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetimes. I think it's going to happen in like 200 years. Not AI? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Knock on wood. I mean, <laughs> I don't think AI will because I don't think we'll event. I don't, I think people are too like profit hungry. And I don't think it'll, I don't think it will. What do you think? Is it going to, do you think? I mean, I almost wish it'll be AI because I feel like that would be the most interesting version of uh, the end of yeah. the world. <laughs> I feel like it's the, the most creative one. <laughs> A hundred percent. I, it would be interesting to see AI become like truly sentient. Um, I mean, at that point we're just dead, um, because I think the AI would kill us, but I just think like a lot of other stuff is going to happen before then. And even though tech progress can seem really fast, it takes, it takes a while. And I still think we're like in such early days of the chat GPT thing. Uh, I don't know, maybe though. <laughs> it would it would be it would be cool to, to be around for that <laughs> <laughs> and here's one question I ask all my guests have you ever been arrested no I'm like trying to remember have I been arrested no I mean I got caught like shoplifting when I was a teenager but um but no I've never been arrested thank god I mean because it sucks it's a terrible experience I'm sure Is there anything else you'd like to um, talk about? Anything else? Yeah, we didn't discuss. I'm trying to think. I mean, I really hope people buy my book. Um, Pre-order it today. Pre-orders are so important. And uh, it's a real history of the internet. And I think mm -hmm. that for anybody that spends a lot of time online, they'll find it interesting. There's a lot of kind of untold stories and things from the early internet that people might have might forget, might have forgotten about. Oh, this one I wanted to ask. Um, have you seen the Queen Maker? I think you yes, <laughs> yes. I just interviewed Ben Whittacombe, who was a producer um, yeah. on the show, and uh, he's been like heavily involved in the whole socialite scene. 
Yeah, Ben, um, I think Ben wrote about that whole incident in his book, but yeah, he's definitely so plugged in. I'm such a, I'm such a fan of Ben and his work. Um, my friend Emmett worked on that, on that, that documentary as well. Um, I thought it was phenomenal. I thought it was so interesting. I got to interview Zachary, the, um, the filmmaker, the director of the project as well. Mm-hmm. I think it was, I mean, what I thought was so interesting, and I wrote a little bit about this in my review of, of the documentary, but like, you know, I'm so familiar with the story of Socialite Rank and Park Avenue Peerage. And I used to read those blogs like religiously, mm-hmm. but I had no idea about Morgan's story or just kind of like, I thought it was a really interesting picture of kind of like how a person can evolve and like how their internet presence can also evolve, you know, like I just like how our identity evolves. And also I just think like, you know, it was an interesting story about like trans life in general that I was so unexpected. Hmm. The name of your book is extremely online, right? And mm-hmm. it will be available in September, right? It will be available October 3rd is when it comes out. So pre-order it now. And it's everywhere now. on Amazon. Everywhere, and everywhere. Amazon. It's Simon & Schuster. Um, you can get it Barnes & Noble, Amazon, anywhere you want, bookshop.org. It's called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. And um, where we can follow you on your socials. Yeah, well, subscribe to my YouTube channel. <laughs> I'm getting into YouTube now. Um, <laughs> so I'm just at Taylor Lorenz. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Lorenz. No Twitter? <laughs> I don't, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter, but I really only post like, you know, news about the, I mean, follow me on Twitter, I guess, if you want, at Taylor Lorenz, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend my Twitter. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. Taylor and I both have been the bot of internet gossip, maybe to different extremes, but obviously it affected both our lives. Hopefully someone from Wikipedia is listening right now. We absolutely need a comment section on our profiles. Let's make our Wikipedia pages great again. The Anatelvis Show is a reunion audio and audio app production. The show is produced by Sean Glass, sound supervised and co-produced by John Eckhouse. Reunion audio?